Welcome back to the 34th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some of the top stories, including how the GOP taking control is going to hurt and benefit Biden, why Stacey Abrams lost, and we're going to discuss the FTX collapse and its effect on the wider crypto market as well as lobbying efforts in Washington. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. So with these midterm elections, there are lots of lessons to be learned. The real question is, will Democrats and Republicans actually take any lessons and actually learn from them? I know, right? Big, big idea. Maybe we should actually apply some of the lessons or some of the trends that we saw during this election. You know, the main lesson, I think, is that Americans want stability. They don't want high inflation. They don't necessarily want instability when it comes to the southern border. They don't want their children being taught in schools things that are not necessarily, let's just say, educational focused. And they don't want crazy. And that goes for the election deniers as well. They don't want these kind of people in office. So the real question is, Will both sides put their blinders on and see who can win the race to who is the most extreme, the craziest? Or will they step back and actually learn that Americans want moderates? They want people to come back to the middle. They don't want the far right. They don't want the far left. At the end of the day, they want people that speak to them and speak to their everyday issues. All right, with that, Put all your comments, any statements down in the comments section. Love to hear what you guys have to say and maybe respond to one or two. All right. Our first article comes from the New York Post. A GOP-run house will fix inflation simply by stopping Biden's enormous spending. So at this point, it looks like the Republicans are going to lock in the house and what I was recently going through this morning, it appears that they have lost the Senate, or at least they have lost the ability to have a majority in the Senate. Right now, Nevada has come in for Masto-Cortez, which means that they're going to at least have a 50-50 Senate again. And if Warnock wins over Walker in the Georgia runoff, then they'll have a 51-50 majority in the Senate, meaning they can basically get any judicial nominees or possibly Supreme Court nominees through if something were to unfortunately happen to one of the justices. So that's a big win. Even without the Warnock or War uh, Walker election going their way, with Kamala Harris as the dividing vote, they could still get those judicial nominees through. So that's a big win for Democrats, and that's something you should definitely keep your eye on because if Biden believes that this is his last presidency, which I'm not saying he does, but if he does believe it's his last presidency, then he's going to do what Trump did and try to get as many judicial appointees in as possible to aid the Democrats on their mission to ensure that whatever they put into law stays ratified in law and doesn't get struck down in the courts. So just keep your eye out for that. You'll probably see a lot of back and forth within the next year 
or maybe even two years, especially depending on how it looks for Biden over the judicial appointees. But the Democrats losing the House, it could be good or bad news for Biden. Quote, President Biden and Democrats have actively driven prices higher through their regulation, tariffs, Buy America rules, tightened ethanol mandates, and the Davis-Bacon rule, raising construction costs and restrictions on new building, end quote. So what the author is getting at is with Republicans controlling the House, it's unlikely that Biden will be able, and the Democrats, will be able to put in any more of these new restrictions or any new rules that make it harder for businesses to operate, as well as it's going to keep Biden from coming through and actually enacting the rest of what he promised during his campaign, which would be around $6.2 trillion in new spending. Quote, Republicans may not have produced a comprehensive anti-inflation agenda, but their most valuable weapon will be gridlock. While Biden has already enacted $4.8 trillion in new spending, he had proposed a staggering $11 trillion during his 2020 campaign. Any chance of enacting the final $6.2 trillion in remaining promises, digging the inflation and deficit ditch even deeper, is almost surely dead with a GOP house. But in this, you know, the author is trying to highlight here that, oh, this is a good thing. They're not going to be able to spend rampantly. They're not going to be able to put forward programs that are overly bloated because they have to get through on bipartisan support. They would have to bring over some Republicans as well. And of course, that's a, that's a good thing. At the end of the day, we do not want to spend more money than we have to. At the end of the day, of course, we're going to spend more money. Unfortunately, that is the nature of government, or at least how it operates nowadays. We're constantly going to spend more money. But at least during these next two years, it can be tamped down, and if it is money that is meant to be spent for the American people, hopefully it will be legislation that comes from both sides and supports Republicans and Democrats, Republican states and Democrat states, so it doesn't have a disproportionate or a disparate effect, uh, impact on one side of the aisle or the other. And that's really what we're, we're trying to, or the author's trying to highlight here, is that with this gridlock is going to come a balance. But that also creates a flip side to the situation that could actually benefit President Biden. Quote, ironically, this may be the best outcome for President Biden. The past two years of partisan Democrat overreach drove the president's approval ratings to among the lowest of post-war presidents. Perhaps the president will become the moderate Americans thought they elected, rather than the Elizabeth Warren clone they got instead. We've seen this story before. President Obama spent his first two years teaming up with the Democratic Congress to enact a trillion-dollar stimulus bill and Obamacare. Then the 2010 shellacking brought a GOP House that clipped Obama's most liberal wings and ultimately helped him win re-election, end quote. And this, the, the author does point out here, I'm not going to read the entire quote because it's, it basically says the same thing, that this also happened during Bill Clinton's administration. So what we're seeing here is, historically, when the president has overreached, and this goes for Trump too, when he has gone too far to the base or appealed too much to the base, 
the American people come out and say, no, 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 we, we don't want these sort of policies. And that is exactly why we always see, for the most part, in historical trends, except for maybe Bush in 2002, we always see the party in power being ridiculed. Because whenever the party in power, they get the presidency, and maybe they get a little bit of control of the House and the Senate, they enact their agenda. They believe that the American people have given them the ability, that they have faith in their agenda, and then they enact it. And then if they go too far with it, or if they're perceived to have gone too far with it, then the American people say, whoa, 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 Buster, we're going to lock you in. No, no, you don't get to spend like that. You don't get to go out to the mall with my credit card and constantly spend on these programs that I don't agree with. Get back here. I'm canceling the credit card on you. And that's what almost always happens. So when the American people do that, they moderate the president a little bit. They take away a lot of the power, which is beautiful that our system works the way it does and that there's a balance of power like this. There are constant checks on one another. And then, in turn, the president and his party have to moderate. They have to come back to the middle in order to get what they want done. They have to work with the other side to even get small concessions and part of their agenda passed. So that has the effect of making them appear more moderate at the end of the day. And then they tend to make gains and recover from their midterm losses when they run for president again. And that's what happened with Bill Clinton. That's what happened with Obama. That's what the author is trying to show here. So this could be a benefit, a net benefit for Joe Biden because he's not going to be able to get much done. He's not going to be able to appeal to the progressives in this party. He's going to have to appeal to the moderates, which then is going to make him appear more moderate when he runs again, or sorry, if he runs again in 2024. So this leaves Republicans in a really tricky spot. They could let Biden pass more spending and shore up his likelihood of being thrown out in 2024, but upset the voters that voted, they voted for them. Or they could lock the spending down and increase the likelihood that he gets reelected. And of course, there's not really a choice here at all. But it's an interesting thought experiment to say, would the Republicans sacrifice themselves, sacrifice their own elections next time that they have to be reelected to ensure a 2024 Republican president. Obviously, politics is self-serving and that's not going to happen. But I always think it's interesting as an outsider to think of the grand vision and how, oh, they, they have to have some big ideas, some big grand plan about what they should do. And, you know, I think, like I said, it's an interesting thought experiment. Quote, President Biden may or may not run for re-election in two years. However, with inflation still elevated, rising interest rates soaring, and budget deficits likely headed towards $3 trillion within a decade. Yes, you read that correctly. And just pause here. Yes, you heard that correctly. He and other politicians will have to abandon the lazy politics of Santa Claus. Even free spending brings a painful cost. End quote. And I think that's a good quote to end on here. Just keep in mind, everything has a price. All right, so our next article comes from The Daily Beast. Here's why Stacey Abrams lost. And there is a quick note here. The author has worked with Stacey Abrams before. And you really need to keep that in mind when listening to this. The author starts by highlighting the similarities between Warnock, the current 
Senate candidate in Georgia, and Abrams. It is telling that Warnock outpolled Stacey Abrams, a former state house minority leader, by about three percentage points. On the issues, there is no daylight between them. As legislators and even as diehard progressives, they both have a track record of working hard to reach across the aisle. They share a force of character, unwavering moral compass, intellectual depth and dexterity, and an abiding devotion to righting wrongs wherever they find them. End quote. What the author really fails to mention here, or at least throughout the entire article, fails to highlight which I think is a very important factor, is that Warnock is an incumbent while Abrams is not. And this is something that people, you know, they bring it up every once in a while. They slightly mention, oh, well, the incumbent normally wins. But when doing analysis as to why their candidate didn't win, they don't bring it up. And this is very important because people like a track record, especially in Georgia. The author does highlight in Georgia people like homegrown candidates who have done things for Georgia and build on top of that a track record of doing it for a long period of time, not just in the House of Georgia being a minority leader of the party, but being a governor, enacting policies that help people. They want that track record. And it really goes back to the daily debate that I brought up in the beginning. People want stability. They know exactly what they're getting with Kemp. With Stacey Abrams, they have an understanding of what she says she'll do, But at the end of the day, they haven't seen her in the office. They haven't seen her putting in the work day to day as governor. So when they look between Abrams and Kemp, they say, "Uh, well, I mean, I know what that guy's doing. And, you know, she said some things I may like, but at the end of the day, I know what I'm getting with Kemp. And remember, Warnock is also an incumbent. And that's where Walker's having a hard time breaking through because people have a storied record of Warnock. Walker's not the best candidate anyway, so keep that in mind. But people understand what Warnock wants to do. They have an understanding of what he has done. And they they trust him to some degree. He made big inroads in traditionally GOP uh, segments of counties in Georgia. So... Being an incumbent is a very big part about this, and I really want to highlight it because I think when the author skips over it, they're kind of leaving out a very important aspect of this conversation. People like the results, and while Abrams may have some great ideas, she doesn't have the results that Kemp has behind him from his first term. Quote, but some of the same swing voters who tapped the torch touchscreen for Warnock also voted for Governor Brian Kemp over Abrams. How could that be when one is pro-choice and the other pro-life? The answer, at least for Georgians, is that for all the foot stomping, abortion wasn't really the question. If it was, then Walker, who reportedly paid for two abortions for his ex-girlfriends, would have been back home in Texas by now which is interesting to hear. You heard throughout this entire cycle that the Democrats, and from the Democratic leadership, that abortion is on the ballot. So what were these people really voting for if they weren't voting on besides abortion? Oh, wait, wait for it. Oh, I have my theory again. It's called results. They know what Warnock brings. They know what Kemp brings. The author also claims Georgia voters were voting against her, more accurately, what she stands for. Quote, Abrams was 
more than a candidate. She was a symbol, the living embodiment of what many believe Georgia could and should be. Sorry, I should probably be reading this with a little bit more gravitas. Still, for others, an unapologetic black progressive was a caricature of everything they feared most. A proverbial boogeyman, too soft on crime, too ready to raise their taxes, snatch their guns, and destroy their way of life. For the record, Abrams is none of those. End quote. Sorry, I don't know. It's just the way that this author phrases it. It just feels so dramatic, at least when it comes down to this last section or this last part of the article. So if, you know, she was more than those things, then why would people not want her in office? And the author makes a very interesting claim here and says it's because Georgia was not ready for her, saying, quote, Abrams doesn't need to change. We do, end quote. And this is where I really wanted to pick out this article and have a conversation. Everything I said beforehand is, in my opinion, factual analysis, or at least breaking down what has actually happened and why it happened and what are the key components to why she lost. But now I get into the part where I really have a problem with the media and how they're portraying certain issues. I mean, how arrogant how extremely arrogant do you have to be to claim that voters have to change because they didn't elect someone? I came into this article hoping for you know a thoughtful deconstruction of what Abrams could have done better, but rather I was handed a note reading, you're the problem. I mean, it's complete and utter baloney, and this is the problem that media has. They can't accept that their candidates didn't actually go out there, put in the legwork, and talk about issues that people actually care about. You saw Abrams going around speaking about abortion at many different uh, rallies and locations. You probably saw the famous clip of her saying that abortion, that sorry, that there's no heartbeat until later than in the pregnancy than there is. And Obviously, the Dobbs decision is very hot right now. And of course, she may think that people care about that and she may want to run on that. But like the author said herself, these people in Georgia do not care about abortion as much as they care about the track record of what they've these candidates have done for them. So I think that it's extremely arrogant to come out and say, oh, no, 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 no. You, as the voter, you need to change your perspective. She's just, she is just the bleeding edge. She is just leading. You need to make sure that you're on her level, not, oh, she needs to come down and understand the common issues of the people. And if the media can't call out their own candidates for not speaking to what the people actually want, then their candidates are going to keep on losing. If Stacey Abrams reads this article and says, oh, yeah, they're right. I don't need to change anything about my policy. I don't need to become more moderate. I don't need to listen to the people. The people need to listen to me. Then they're just going to build a pathology that, oh, no, no, I'm right. The voters are wrong. They don't know what's good for them. And it's kind of this elitist mentality that is extremely frustrating, extremely arrogant. And I really just wanted to highlight that. I'm sorry that I spent the last little portion of this one talking about it. And I was trying to have actual deconstruction of why she lost and looking at the Georgia election. But I think this is a really important aspect of this article, or at least the media, that needs to be brought up and needs to be highlighted. 
But, of course, my rants, they're not going to change anything at the end of the day. People are going to listen. They're either going to click through or they're going to comment. And it's not going to change the political system anytime soon. So, we'll move on from that one and we'll go into another topic that will have me a little bit hot and bothered. This one comes from Protocol. FTX's collapse has thrown the crypto lobby a curve. So, FTX has fallen from grace, so to speak. It is going to set back regulation by a year and the crypto lobbyists by about five. Quote, Christian Smith, executive director of an influential crypto lobby group, Blockchain Association, said she, quote, forgot it was election day. The rapid fire tweets revealing the deal were, quote, absolutely mind blowing, she said. Quote, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like this, said Smith. That was the most remarkable day I've had in my career working in crypto, end quote. And so for those of you that don't know, FTX completely collapsed. And when this happened, Beyonce, one of the other largest crypto companies, crypto platforms, stepped in and was trying to shore up the markets to purchase some of FTX's assets and kind of stabilize the crypto market and ensure that it didn't keep sliding. But when the deal fell through, it was 10 times worse than when FTX collapsed itself. I'm pretty sure it knocked off $3,000 off Bitcoin, I think around uh, $500 for Ethereum. All I'll say is I looked at my wallet and I just I saw all the numbers crashing down down, down. And uh, let's just say I wasn't the happiest badger that day. So the article wants to highlight the relationship here between the lobbyists and the regulators and how this is going to affect them. Quote, this is a step backwards in terms of advocacy in Washington, Smith said. Gabriel Kutz, CEO of Global Digital Assets and Cryptocurrency Association, agreed. What happened with Beyonce and FTX will most definitely impact the ability of FTX and the organizations they support to work in good faith with legislators and regulators, she told Protocol. And this has to do with the fact that FTX's CEO, Sam Bankham-Fried, has spent years, I mean years, building connections in Washington in order to get favorable terms for crypto when regulations eventually do come down the pipeline. And this, of course, makes sense. I mean, Wall Street has their lobbyists there in Washington, so why can't crypto? And some of these big, like Gemini, the I can't remember the name of the brothers, but the brothers that uh, run Gemini, they're Harvard grads, they have connections in Washington. And all of these big crypto companies have started putting in a lot of money towards lobbying in order to... Make sure that when regulation does come down, it's not too harsh and that they can still do their business, as well as their job when they go to Washington is to try to accurately inform legislators and regulators what's going on inside the market, what the, I mean, in some cases, they actually have to explain what crypto is. But at this point, most legislators have been briefed and know about it. But this kind of bad faith or this kind of fall from grace by FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried especially is really going to to shift the landscape, so to speak. This is going to cause legislators to come down even harder on crypto, basically, when regulation does come about. And 
trust me, Washington will not forget about this anytime soon. Quote, crypto has been building up its presence in Washington over the past year as the industry faced heightened regulatory scrutiny and challenges. The industry found itself in a major battle last year when crypto companies and lobby groups, including blockchain associates, tried to block provisions that would have required miners and node operators to report crypto transactions like brokerages. While the campaign failed, the issue helped galvanize the industry and its allies in Washington. So I'm going to stop there, and then we'll read the rest of the quote here in a second. This is one of the the main things that came out of this last push by regulators. They've really come together. They've built a base of legislators in office that are willing to listen to them and hear them out and actually maybe even put in regulation that is pro-crypto while also being pro-consumer. And there was talk of a DAACP bill, which instead of having crypto be regulated by the SEC, it would be regulated by the CFTC, which basically would say it's not actually a security, but rather it's a commodity. So then there would be less tight restrictions on trading and how these companies that are acting as platforms are taxed as well as scrutinized and how they have to record certain transactions. And that is a big deal because a lot of people who are involved in crypto, they want that anonymity. They don't want necessarily to have everything marked down. When you buy a security, it has to be written in your name for the most part. And let's be clear, they're not going to not write it in your name because they have to have a record of it. But they are not going to go around and say this security is just outright Billy Bob Joe Smith's blah, 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 and bought on behalf in the platform. They're going to say, oh, no, no, the platform has acquired this asset and they're holding it in reserve for this other account that is owned by Billy Bob Joe, which can have different tax implications. And also, at the end of the day, if it's treated, if crypto is treated as a security, then certain plays can be less viable. Certain big crypto whales couldn't dump as much crypto because they could be seen as manipulating the market. And I don't know what the case is under the CFTC, if that's if it's being treated as a commodity. I don't know if that necessarily changes. But I know that was one big fear of a lot of people that I've been listening to in the crypto industry. All right, so back to the quote here. Over the summer, Senate, Senator Cynthia Loomis and Christian Gillibrand introduced the Responsible Financial Innovation Act, which seeks to clarify regulations for crypto. The bill largely endorses the industry view that many cryptocurrencies should not be regulated as securities, end quote, which kind of gets at the battle I was talking about deciding who's going to regulate. Is it going to be the SEC or is it going to be the CFTC? And Trust me, now that that bill, that would have been a huge win for crypto yeah, and trading platforms, that, that bill is all but dead now. So over the next few years, you got to keep your eyes out. you got to be very careful when you're investing in crypto going forward because you don't know what the future holds. I mean, they've pushed, now that this collapse has happened, legislators are going to have to take it into account They're going to probably spend another year creating new legislation that actively addresses some of the issues that happened here with FTX. But that means that it's just an extra year where the price can go up, more people can get invested, 
and then the government comes down and makes regulation that can practically destroy the market, destroy faith in the market, and it all tumbles down to zero. Now, that is being very negative. I don't see it tumbling to zero anytime soon, especially if you stick to your big assets, Ethereum, Bitcoin, maybe Cardano. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just saying the delayed regulation, though people in the crypto industry don't want regulation at all, the delayed regulation puts more unease in the market. And when people are uneasy, the market becomes very volatile because they don't know which way things are going to go. And obviously people can't predict the future, but at least if they have some idea of where these regulators are going to regulators are going to line up and how the lobbyists are going to push for certain things, then they can at least have faith that the market eventually will go up. Therefore they should invest. But right now it's stagnant, volatile. I mean, I looked at it yesterday and I was floating above $30, $30 up for the day, $30 down for the day, $30 up for the day. It was just going back and forth. So this instability is really going to hurt the market short term and we'll have to see what comes out regulation wise. So just be careful when considering buying crypto assets. And let's be clear, not financial advice. I'm just telling you, keep your eyes out. All right, now that the hot and bother topics are out of the way, let's get something that's going to brighten the day, our daily delight. This one comes from the American Rescue site. Parrot hilariously complains about cat during a conversation with his human dad. So have you ever wanted to have a conversation with your animal? I mean, I know at least when I was younger, I always wondered what would my dog say if she could talk to me? And obviously I felt like she could talk to me. Ah, give me my food, give me my food. But I really wanted to know if we would sit down and start having a debate about the ethics of human reasoning and whether Kant was right versus uh, Hue in the French philosophy scene. I don't know. I just think it would have been interesting to have a conversation with my dog. So imagine you have a parrot, and then you could hear him talk about his day. Quote, a parrot could even complain about something, especially a kitten who lives with him at home. This video was uploaded on the YouTube channel created by the cockatoo's owner. It was like a scene in a movie or show where the parrot converses with his humans. It was both amazing and hilarious. And this cockatoo's name is Max, and he is an absolute hoot. Quote, apparently the cat had done something which Max finds stressful as it almost got him into trouble. His humans attentively listen to Max's story, and you can see that they are building a conversation. And although the audio was incomprehensible, it's evident that Max can understand his owner well and was able to answer all of his questions. And, you know, it is a pretty cute video. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is my Twitter handle, at your daily flip. Try to post something daily, commentary, news stories, as well as links to the podcast. So go follow me on Twitter there. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.